So when the oceans rage, I don't ever have to be afraid, right? Love that song. Man, Josh, Josh did a great job picking out these songs tonight, my fa- some of my favorites. Um, and I want to tell you what I've been telling you that, uh, yeah, I love you guys a lot. And we love, I know you get tired of me hearing it, but this time of year, <clears throat> I feel compelled to say it because we're losing you and uh, many of you. And it's just really, it's a real challenge for me. I had a really difficult week. Just, you know, I usually have one week out of the season that, that gets me, and I had a week, that week was this week, and uh, so, um, but I'm doing much better, and uh, the Lord always sees us through this, this, uh, this emotional time, but we love you, and we love the privilege to be here with you, and to, uh, yeah, worship the Lord in this redeemed garage, and sing His praises, and <clears throat> so it's a great, it's a great joy. Um, so, I want to begin tonight with uh, a quote from one of my favorite preachers, a uh, famous preacher in the States. I know you've heard me quote him many times. And Karen, who do you think it is? It's not John Piper. So, gasp, shock, awe, astonishment, and amazement. It's not John Piper. It's my other favorite preacher in the States, John MacArthur, and he says something uh, that I think, I want, you, I want you to listen to the quote and tell me if you agree. He says, the course and quality of our lives are determined much more by our decisions than by our circumstances. What do you think? I'll read it to you again. The course and the quality of our lives are determined much more by our decisions than by our Circumstances. Do you agree? Decisions trump circumstance? I think he may be right. I mean, we can go back, we can look, we can start early in the Bible. Um, We look at Adam and Eve's decision, right? To disobey the Word of God. Um, And obviously we see the consequences. Um, in the history of mankind and through the, throughout the Bible, we, we look at Noah's decision to obey the Lord as he saved his family and all of mankind in the process. We've talked recently in, in Young Adult Bible Study, and I know I refer to it frequently in my preaching, um, we look at the decision of the Exodus Jews at Kadesh Barnea. They decided that God wasn't God enough to believe he wasn't God enough to trust. He wasn't God enough to obey. So they decided not to go in. And of course, they were destined to wander um, in the wilderness and die there because of that decision. Uh, another, <laughs> another famous uh, character from the Old Testament that, uh, again, the young adults, we have just got through looking at him as well. Another one of my favorite uh, Gideon, we see Gideon's decision to, to trust the Lord, to, to go down to the enemy camp outnumbered 450 to 1, and God used Gideon and his men to rout the enemy. So, I could cite example after example from the Bible to support the fact that decisions, particularly decisions for or against God, have much more to do with the quality uh, of our lives than do 
our temporal circumstances, whatever they may be, whether they're favorable or unfavorable. It's the decisions that we make in the face of these circumstances. It's a universal pastime of humanity to complain about our circumstance. It's just part of who we are as fallen people. We always want to complain. Every once in a while you'll encounter someone who is not given to that predisposition, but many of us, if not most of us, just generally like to complain about our circumstance. Of course, the undeniable fact is the only reason we don't live in paradise is why? Why is it that we don't live in paradise? Because we decided with Adam and Eve, our forebears decided, and as God makes clear in, in the Scriptures, we were in their loins. We decided that maybe God was holding out on us and maybe there's something better than God. So, we find ourselves in this predicament. It's, it's as if mankind starts the, the ball rolling down the hill and then we blame God for the avalanche of pain and suffering that follows. This is what I hear all the time. Why does God allow this? Why doesn't God change that? Why doesn't God stop that? Of course, God can and He does in His perfect wisdom and judgment. But we're the ones that started the ball rolling down the hill. We, we started the snowball rolling down the hill. And it does no good for us then to turn and rail at God because of the pain and suffering in the world. There's a lot of pain and suffering in the world because we rebelled against a good and gracious and awesome, benevolent God. We did that, beloved. We did that. So don't blame God and don't let those in your circle get away with blaming God for the difficulties in the world. God has offered... Mankind, a choice. Listen to a couple of these great passages. Deuteronomy 30.19 God says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, so choose life in order that you may live. Joshua 24.14-15 and 15. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today what gods you will serve. 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah challenged the people. He said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. And that verse ends there. Pardon me, 1 Kings 18.21. But the people did not answer Him a word. It's true, isn't it? To make no decision regarding Jesus Christ is to make a decision. To make no decision about Him is in effect to reject Him, which is what much of humanity has done and is doing. God says, you choose. It's one thing I've been saying to you in the last several weeks. God says, here I am. You can have me, all of me that you want. And really the question is, as I keep putting to you, how, how much do you want God? Do you want God? And this, you know, the first question, secondly, how much do you want God? Can you fit Him in around your career? Can you fit Him in around your family and, and your children? Can you fit Him in into your hobbies? And does He fit in? Where does He fit in? Exactly where does God fit into your life? 
as far as your, your priorities are concerned, God says, here I am. How much of me do you want? It's the invitation of the Bible. How much of me do you want? How much of me do you want? It's an awesome invitation. God says to you and me, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, heaven and hell. You choose. You choose. You choose. So in Hebrews 11, we've been making our way through the chapter. Not only does Hebrews 11 define and illustrate what true, biblical, born-again, um, saving faith looks like, there, there is a progression of faith also that, that overlays the chapter. I'm going to try to point that out to you here briefly. But first we saw in verse 1 that faith, God's definition of faith is that it is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We synthesize that saying that God is, is uh, God, faith is, is, I'm going to get it right in a minute. God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. Sometimes you just should not look at your notes. So, um, yeah, so that's how we summarize that and synthesize that. Verse 6, we, we notice that uh, God tells us that there are two things that please Him. One, two aspects of faith. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. But what were the two aspects of faith that please God? What are the two specific things He tells us there in Hebrews eleven six? Anybody remember? We must not only believe that He is, we must believe that He's a rewarder. And we've made the point repeatedly, if you don't believe He's a rewarding God, you'll never obey Him with glad, reckless joy. You'll never be more than a church member on a church row. You'll never be a disciple. Only the men and women who are convinced that He is a good God ever take a risk for Him in obedience. All the others just go to church. When it's convenient. But those who not only believe that He is, but believe that He's a rewarder, you can't stop them. <laughs> you can't stop them from living their faith huge. It's just what they do. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. He's a rewarding God. I believe it. I believe it with everything I have and everything I own and everything that I ever will be. I believe it. I believe Him with my, with my financial resources. I believe Him with my family. I believe Him with my career. I believe Him all the way. I'm all in every day. I believe it. This is what God is saying in Hebrews 11. My people believe me. They believe I'm good. And they live like it. That's really biblical faith. Now, I know there are a lot of counterfeit counterfeit definitions of faith out in the world and you hear them in pseudo-churches, pseudo-Christian churches. If you hear a different definition of faith than what God says in Hebrews 11, you know you're in a false church. You're in a pseudo-church. You should run uh, in great haste to leave that place. So, I mentioned the progression of faith. We talked about it, was it last week? I think it was last week. We talked about it. Two of those, two of those things. One was, how does faith begin in the life of the Christian? How does it begin? Anybody remember? How does it begin? Remember, God warned Noah. God called Abraham. God promised Sarah. So what's, what do we have in common there? God and His Word. Right? God and His Word. That's how faith always starts. It never doesn't start like that. God and His Word. 
If your faith is built on anything else than that, um, or anything less than that, you might want to go back and revisit the beginning. God initiates. God saves His people. God saves His people. So God initiates. We saw that as part of what God says real faith is. In God-initiated faith, what happens? What always happens? We saw it last week. What always happens? If, if, God's, if the faith is real, what happens? It's visible, right? In our lives. People in our orbit see it. They hear it. They taste it. They smell it. It's just real. And people know it's real. People know we've, we've been changed. We've been touched by God. We are different. We are, as we talked about last week, we are aliens and exiles upon the earth. We're no longer earthbound. We are heavenbound. So, this is some of the progression. God initiates. We respond. We live it out. This is part of the progression. And we are out of here. Right? We enjoy the blessings of God in this life, but nothing is better than Jesus. And whatever, whatever Jesus calls me to, that's who I am. That's what I do. So that's part of the progression here in chapter 11. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child according to the New American Standard. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So, first I talk to parents tonight. All of you who are parents, all of you who maybe someday desire to be parents, do you see what Moses' parents did? What does it say there in verse 23? How did they live? By what? They lived by faith. That's how Moses' parents lived. They lived by faith. And you know the story. A little bit of background here. Uh, Pharaoh rose up in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. And he was afraid. He, he started to grow afraid of the Jews, the, the expanding population of the Jews. And so he ordered that the, that the male babies would be killed at birth. And so... Moses' parents, they had to decide, you know, do, do they follow the edict of the, the Pharaoh or do they live by faith? They had no middle way here. But I love what the text says. They were not afraid of the king's edict. And so, you guys know the story, and I won't go into those details yet, maybe a little bit later in the sermon. But what I want to say is, do you see, initially, do you see how far-reaching the faith of Moses' parents is? Moses becomes one of the greatest men to ever walk the planet. Do you see how it starts? Do you see how it starts? Parents, do you see how it starts? It starts with mommy and daddy, right? God used his parents, and his parents began this legacy for him. Right? It started with the parents. So, I want to ask you parents and future parents, what are you setting in motion for your children? What will you set in motion for your children? Are you, are you giving them a godly legacy? Will you give them a godly legacy? Will their inheritance from you be an undying 
unqualified faith in Jesus Christ. This is the best way to love your kids. You know, I, I grew up in, a, in the States, very prosperous country, and people think, well, I want to leave my kids with all the advantages. I want to give them all the comforts. I want to give them a lot of cash when I, when I, when I die. Beloved, that's not even close to the best gift to give your kids. The best gift to give your kids is that they see you love Jesus. That's the best gift you give your kids. They see you radically loving Christ and radically obeying Christ and radically worshiping Christ in every aspect of your life. That's the best gift that we give to our children. So I ask you parents here and future parents, do your kids see that in you? Do they see that God is and that God's a rewarder? Do they see that? Will they see that? As you have children in the future, it's the greatest gift that we can give to our kids. You know, all the experts tell us what we already know, that parents are the most important teachers in the life of a child. So what are you teaching your kids? About God. About Jesus Christ. Verse 24 and 26, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Pardon me. He was looking to the reward. Again, we need some Old Testament background here. Most of you know the story. Uh, after three months... Moses' mother could no longer hide the child, so she put him in a basket, watertight basket, put him into the reeds um, there by the Nile River. Uh, he is found by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted by her. So Moses grows up in the royal court. He's highly educated and cultured. He's raised the prince of Egypt at the zenith of its power, and he experiences all the privileges and wealth that that kind of life could afford. We know what uh, Stephen says about Moses in Acts 7.22, he says, He was educated in all the learning of Egypt, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. So Moses, as he matures, he has to face a decision. He has to make a decision to align himself with all the privilege and power and wealth of Egypt or to align himself with the people of God. Oh, guess what? It's the same decision you have to make. <laughs> you have to decide, are you going to love Egypt? Metaphor for the world. Or will you love God? I mean, it's the same decision you and I have to make. Whom will we love the most? What does our life give witness to? Do I? Does my daily life show that I, I've, I'm truly... I, I truly have given myself to Christ wholly and completely? Or is my heart divided? And of course, biblically, we understand a divided heart is an unregenerate heart. Does it mean that we uh, can't be distracted at times and fall into sin at times? That's not what I'm saying. But ultimately, at the bottom of our heart is an overpowering love for Jesus Christ. 
So Moses has to make this decision. Um, God says, choose for yourself. Choose for yourself what God you'll have. It's an amazing thing that our Creator does, isn't it? He says, choose for yourself what God you'll have. Choose for yourself which God you will serve. So Moses has to make the decision. We've been asking the last several weeks, what is the desire and treasure of our hearts? Jesus said, Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus said you can't serve two. There can only be one. So I ask you in love, who are you serving? Whom are you serving? Who do you love preeminently? Moses has to decide. Is your heart set on God and the heavenly country as we talked about last week? Or are you still flirting with the world? This is an important question, beloved, for each of us, I think. So, Hebrews 11 is unambiguous. Biblical faith desires God above all else. Just read the text. It's what you get from reading the text. You really don't need me to exposit the text. The text is clear. The text is clear. God says, My people choose Me over the world every time. And the title of this sermon is Real Faith does hard things because we love God. Again, I challenge you all the time. Christianity is not just simply showing up for church. It's going out in the world and obeying God in ways that are risky and costly and expensive. That's, it's, what, it's what the Lord is showing us here in Hebrews 11, right? I mean, we're going to get to the end of the chapter where people are getting sawn in two, right? So, that is coming. That is coming soon. So religion, pseudo-Christianity, which is no more than brain-dead, heart-dead religion, tells us that, you know, a little religion on Sunday is enough. A few prayers, maybe a profession of faith, an ordinance or two. God says in Hebrews 11, <laughs> my people believe I am, they believe I'm good, and then they go out in the world and they live like it. This is what God says real faith is. So Moses has the choice. He has to decide. Did you notice? I've already read the text. Verse 25. Did you notice? He chooses rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He made his choice. Moses made his choice. God is better than sin. God is better than anything else in the world. God is better. He's far better than the career. He's far better than the spouse. He's far better than the kids. He's far better than a pile of money. He's far better than fame and acclaim. He's far better. He's infinitely better than anything this world has to offer. And Moses sees it. Moses understands it. He would rather have God than a couple of years of wealth and privilege and fame and glory. 
he would rather have God forever <laughs> than to settle for that. So Moses does what every human being has to do. He weighs it out, right? You have to weigh it out. You have to weigh it out. This is what the world offers. This is what God offers. You, you get to weigh it out. God lets you weigh it out. So how does it seem to you? How does it seem to you? What seems better? What seems like the better choice? We talked last week about this great definition of sin from John Piper. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite value and beauty and joy in God for some fleeting, inferior, sugar-coated substitute. It's a suicidal exchange of the infinite value, beauty, and joy of God for some fleeting, inferior, sugar-coated substitute. You have to decide, I want the world or I want Jesus. You can't have both. You can never have both. I know the world says you can have both. I know a lot of pseudo-churches say you can have both. But God says you can't have both. You can't serve two masters. You can't do it. Your heart will be divided. So you're like Moses. I'm like Moses. We have to decide. Do we give ourselves away to the world or are we going to give ourselves proactively away to this awesome and beautiful God? Moses says, and I challenge you, none of us, you know, particularly me, none of us do this perfectly. But Moses says by his life, I choose God. I do it imperfectly out in the world, but I choose God. Every day, his lifestyle, his, his motivation, his drive, his, his deeds, it says, I choose God. I choose God. I choose God. He is worth more to me than anything the world has to offer. I like how John MacArthur talks about this <clears throat> with Moses here. He says, From a worldly perspective, Moses was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from a spiritual perspective, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. Do you understand that calculus, beloved? Do you understand that calculus? If you're a Christian, you understand that calculus. If you're not a Christian, that calculus makes no sense to you, right? Let me repeat it. From a worldly perspective, Moses is sacrificing everything for nothing, but from a spiritual perspective, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. Verse 26 punctuates what we were saying earlier in this series. It is all about Jesus. My pages keep blowing. Verse 26, He considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Someone tell me how that sentence ends. Because he was looking at what? He's looking at a rewarding God. Amen? We've talked about this. We understand as Christians, the Bible is clear. God has promised reward. I know some of you are too pious. You're not interested in reward. Or at least this is what I hear many times. I'm not really interested in reward. Well, I think that's a backhanded slap at the Word of God. God says, I reward My people. I'm a rewarding God. My people shall receive My reward. I think this is important to God or He would not be mentioning it in Hebrews chapter 11. It is an aspect of true, born again, biblical saving faith. We believe He's there, and we believe He's a rewarder. God means for us to believe this, beloved. He means for us to believe that this is no um, small matter to Him. 
least in my view. So, if you look at some of the other translations of the Greek word that's translated reproach here, some of the other words are abuse, scorn, insult, suffering, and disgrace. Um, have you, are you there in your heart and your mind with Jesus? Are you willing to suffer these things for the glory of His name? Are you, are you willing to be fired? Are you willing to be ostracized by your friends? Are you willing to be alone in a hard place? But we're never alone, really, are we? <laughs> if God takes you to a hard place and you're the only Christian there, uh, can you simply delight in the Lord? Can you make much of Jesus there? Delighting in who He is and the reward that awaits you. Moses was looking to the reward. It's what we see over and over again throughout the Bible. Moses was looking at God and his life shouted that fact. I'm looking at God. I'm looking at the reward. So I, I just ask you, beloved, does your life shout the same thing? As we talked about last week in verse, uh, verse 16, God says, I love it when my people live like this. Therefore, I am not ashamed to be called their God. People who believe that He is, people who believe that He's good, and people who live like they believe that He's good. Verse 27, By faith, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Now, the first time he left Egypt, there was fear. He'd murdered an Egyptian, and Pharaoh had found out about it, and Pharaoh was after Moses, and Moses had fled to Midian, where he fell in love with a shepherd girl and became a shepherd, and he married her. And this is where God came to Moses to call Moses at the age of around 80 to be used of God to deliver God's people. And if you read Exodus chapters 3 and 4, you realize that Moses struggled mightily with the call of God just like you and I do. Because it's never on the resume. <laughs> it's always bigger than what you could ever try to accomplish yourself. God will always call you to these kinds of things. And Moses tried to excuse himself. You remember the text? He tried to excuse himself four or five times. He said, well, God, what about this? God says, I am. <laughs> and Moses says, well, what about that? God says, I am. Moses says, what about this other thing? God says, I'm God over that too. Go and deliver my people and I will be with you. It's an amazing, amazing account. And those of us who have stood there with the call of God on our lives, we understand exactly how terrifying and thrilling it is. <laughs> it's both of those things. And it will happen in each Christian's life. He's going to ask you to do something bigger than, than you think you can do. You know, there's no glory for God in you doing what's on your resume. Um, but there's a lot of glory for Him and a lot of joy for you as you obey Him no matter what He calls you to do. So Moses believed. 
He believed. He believed and he acted. He goes to Egypt with a stick. He walks up in front of Pharaoh with a stick. All he has is a stick, right? That's all he has, right? Or does he have anything else? <laughs> it's God. This man faces down Pharaoh with a staff in his hand. And he boldly speaks to power. It's a beautiful account. If you haven't read it lately, I challenge you to go and read it. You will be, you will be moved. But the second time that Moses leaves Egypt, he's walking with God and there is no fear. He doesn't fear the king. In fact, God has utterly destroyed Egypt. For Pharaoh would not repent. Pharaoh would not bow. Pharaoh was arrogant before God. And God crushed his nation. And did you notice the end of verse 27? Moses was looking at God. The unseen God. Moses was looking at the One who is unseen. Moses was looking at the One who is unseen. The unseen One. goes back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It was as good as done with Moses. You're supposed to know this too, beloved. It's as good as done with you. Whatever God's calling you to do, it's as good as done. All you have to do is show up and do it. God will do all the heavy lifting. All you have to do is show up. It's reminiscent of Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Luke 5.11. They left everything and followed Jesus. Not all of us are called to leave everything. But we're ready to. Amen? Amen? You know, beloved, this is where you have to be as a Christian. You have to do this transaction in your heart. And if you haven't done it, I'm going to challenge you today. Do it today. Don't let, a, don't let the sun set one more time before you do this transaction with God. Whatever He asks, I'll do it. And in most lives, it's a lot like the Abraham experience, right? With Isaac. God asked Abraham for Isaac. And Abraham was willing to give away Isaac. But God gave Isaac right back. This is how He is. So I just challenge you, if you haven't done that transaction in your heart with God, it's time for you to do it. I don't know. Well, there's no good reason to delay. There's no good reason to procrastinate. So God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. God is our fuel. We have liberty. We have license. We have freedom to live our faith as big as we dare. Because He's God and He is a rewarding God. You know, it's true what they say, and I'm sure Sarah could confirm this. You can't be a little bit pregnant, right? Right. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. It's not like you can be a little bit pregnant. You either are or you aren't. The same thing is true for Christianity. You either love Jesus or you don't know Him, beloved. 
You're either giving yourself away to Him or you haven't met Him yet. This is just the reality. You can't be a little bit Christian. You can't be a little bit Christian. You can't be that. You can't be that. God won't allow that. He'll have all of you or He'll have none of you. It's just, it's just how God does business in the Bible. You remember the words of Revelation 3.15. Jesus says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. No such thing as a lukewarm Christian. There's no such thing. Ultimately, again, I understand that, and I confess there are times when we struggle and we are weak and we are frail and we indulge our fears and anxieties, but we, we fight through that, right? True Christians, we keep our eyes on God. We look at God. We remember he, he's, not, he's not only God, He's a rewarding God. He's a good God. Of course I'll obey the Lord. Of course I will. Of course I'll forsake this sin. Of course I will. And if I have to fight tomorrow with this sin, I'll fight tomorrow with this sin. And if I have to fight the next day with this sin, I'll fight the next day with this sin. Right? It's, it's what we do. We fight sin in the hope that God will deliver us ultimately and we know that He will. We know that He will. So we fight. We fight the fight of sanctification. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We become His witnesses in the world. So... As I heard one preacher say one time, and I loved it, I never forgot it, he said, real faith isn't easy. It's not supposed to be. <laughs> if, it was, if it was easy, a chimp could do it, right? Real faith is not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. The world's supposed to see how awesome your God is in how you live your faith, even when it's hard and costly and expensive, even when it costs you everything to stand in that place and profess Christ Jesus, and the world sees it, and most will shun you and persecute you, but some will say, that must be an awesome God. If, if they can love Jesus like that, He must be God. There's something really going on with, with him or with her. Real faith's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. It's never been easy. Read your Bible. It's not easy. But it's always good. <laughs> it's always good, right? It's always good. What was that line in Narnia? Um, oh. Was it Lucy or Susan? I always forget. Uh, maybe we should go ask Gabriel. He probably knows. When Lucy or Susan asked, is, when she found out Aslan was a lion, she said, well, is he safe? Right? And you remember what Mr. Beaver said. It's one of my favorite lines in that. No. Safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. Of course he's not safe. Of course it's not easy to walk with God. Of course it's not. If someone has fed you that lie, 
then I challenge you to I challenge you tonight. Repent. Repent of that lie. You're walking with the Lion of Judah. You're walking with Creator God. You're walking with the King of heaven and earth. Of course it's not easy. Of course it's not easy. And he will He will magnify and multiply your witness in the world. In the hard place. So Here's what every bit of life boils down to. Will you decide for or against Christ? There may be one or two here, I don't know, we have a small crowd tonight, who need to decide to receive Him as Lord and Savior. Or you have to decide to reject Him. Some here may need to decide to set their heart on the things above, forsaking the things of the world. And some here maybe just simply need to finally decide, I will, I will radically obey Him. I will do it. No matter what it looks like, I have open hands with God. So John MacArthur is right. Our decisions in life mean everything. So you have to decide who you're going to belong to, who you're going to love, who you're going to worship and how you're going to live. It's your decision. It's your decision. You don't have to live a mediocre Christian life. In fact, I think that's an oxymoron. I think mediocrity and true biblical Christianity are oxymoronic. Um, we are free. We are absolutely free to be sawn in two for Jesus. Most of us will never face that reality. There may be some in this room that would. But we're free. <laughs> we're free if that's what it comes down to because we know Jesus is better than anything this life has to offer and Jesus is better than anything death can take. We know it. We know it. So God says, Deuteronomy 30.19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Let's pray together. Lord, we understand it's not easy to walk with You. It's not always easy. But it's always good. It's always good. Oh Lord, I pray that we would be a fearless people, a courageous people, that we would be free in the knowledge that not only are You God, You are a rewarding God. And we can live our faith with glad, reckless joy. Lord, we understand. And as we go deeper into Hebrews 11, we will more fully understand that You've called us to be a peculiar people, a people willing to do very 
hard and costly things simply because you are who you are. And you mean to be glorified in the lives of your servants. So Lord, help us, we pray. Help us, we pray. You know our frailty. You know our weakness. You know our fear. You know our anxiety. You know how we struggle in our flesh. Help us, Lord. Help us, we pray. We want to be mighty in the Spirit, Lord. We want to be a people who are, who are mighty in the Word and mighty in the Spirit. That we would bring great honor and acclaim to the name of Jesus Christ. For we love Him above all. We love Him above all. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.